You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. 400 years ago, a trio of tiny kingdoms were perched on some damp islands off the coast of Europe. Within three short centuries, these islands would become the centre of an empire which ruled a quarter of the globe and on which the sun never set. I'm Samuel Hume, a historian of the British Empire, and my podcast Pax Britannica follows the people and events that built that empire into a global superpower. Learn the history of the British Empire by listening to Pax Britannica everywhere you find your podcasts, or go to pod.link slash pax. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 12, Long Live the Fatherland. Thanks for joining me. When we left off last time, Napoleon had just been commissioned as an officer, second lieutenant in the Lafayre Artillery Regiment. He was living in Valence, in southern France, where the regiment was headquartered. A beautiful but sleepy provincial town on the Rhone River, near the foothills of the Alps. Napoleon was only 16, but he already had adult responsibilities. His father, Carlo Bonaparte, had just died at the age of just 38. The young lieutenant was his family's main breadwinner, and sharing the duties of head of household with his older brother, Joseph. These were hard, frustrating years for Napoleon. All of that time he spent with his head buried in books about the great man of history had given him a lot of big, romantic ideas about military glory and political power. He was ambitious. He'd spent his entire youth training to become an officer, and dreaming about the possibilities of an army career. He had rushed to get his commission as fast as possible, Now that he'd finally achieved his goal, the reality turned out to be a lot more mundane than he'd imagined. This was a slow period of Napoleon's life, but it included some important intellectual transformations. His political and philosophical beliefs became more clearly defined through intensive reading and writing. He learned how to be an officer, and picked up some of the military theory that would make him the greatest general of the age. Most importantly, he began to rethink his views on France and the French people, perhaps even began to consider he might be a bit French himself. The army Napoleon entered in 1785 was a peacetime army, conservative, static, and more interested in pinching pennies than winning glory. This state of affairs suited the common soldiers and senior officers just fine, but junior officers of this era typically prayed for war, War meant action and excitement, a chance to finally experience the thing they'd spent most of their lives preparing for. War also brought career prospects, opportunities to distinguish oneself on the battlefield, and avenues for rapid advancement as new regiments were raised and more senior officers fell in the field. But when Napoleon entered service, the royal treasury was already nearing empty. The government was actively avoiding expensive military deployments. Until the revolution transformed France's strategic situation, Napoleon would languish in the slow, boring life of a peacetime lieutenant. So this was not a happy time for most junior officers in the French army, 
but Napoleon's family situation meant he faced additional challenges. Mainly, he was broke. His annual salary was roughly a quarter of what Carlos had been, and Napoleon didn't have his father's lucrative side hustles or willingness to go into debt. And he had a lot of expenses. Unlike today, 18th century militaries did not provide for a lot of the basic necessities of soldiering, or even life, especially for officers. Napoleon had to pay for his own uniform, and much of his own food and equipment. On top of that, there was a tradition of the most junior man picking up the tab at any restaurant or bar when a group of officers went out together. Most young officers in the aristocratic French army had family money to rely on, but this was a real hardship for Napoleon. He put up a brave face to his fellow officers, but his personal letters show he stressed endlessly about money. And this wasn't just some teenage neurosis. His family's finances really were precarious. Eventually, the Bonapartes would be pulled from the brink of bankruptcy by a rich uncle, but Uncle Luciano's timely cash infusion brought the situation from disastrous to merely dangerous. One thing that strikes you when you read about Napoleon's early military career is just how much time he spent on leave. During this period, he spent nearly half of his time away from the regiment, mostly in Paris on family business or back on Corsica. If you look at it from the perspective of a modern military, it seems like he was lazy or preoccupied, maybe even a bad soldier. But this was actually pretty typical for an 18th century army. Peacetime soldiering in this era just wasn't a full-time occupation. Think of it this way, modern states cut down on the expense of having large standing armies by officially designating a lot of their soldiers as part-timers, as reservists, or in institutions like the American National Guard or the old British Territorial Army. 18th century states did much the same with their regular troops. Officers were allowed to go on leave for months at a time. Common soldiers were generally expected to stay at their posts, but were free to take second jobs. Many garrison towns lost their blacksmiths, carpenters, or construction workers when the local regiment was reassigned or marched off to war. Students of American history might know the British military presence in Boston before the American Revolution was deeply resented by the common people of the city. Not purely on principle, but in large part because the Redcoats were hiring themselves out as day laborers, with their incomes supplemented by army wages, food rations, and free rent. The soldiers were willing to work for less and drove down wages for working-class Bostonians. Of course, as an officer and a gentleman, that type of work was both socially unacceptable and actually illegal for Napoleon. Napoleon applied for his first leave in early 1787, a little over a year since arriving in Valence. He claimed exhaustion and illness, which everybody probably knew was just an excuse. The army didn't care, one fewer mouth to feed. As you could probably guess, as soon as his leave was granted, Napoleon left for Corsica. He had some family business to take care of, but from what we can tell, this trip was mostly about getting reacquainted with his family. He'd left home when he was only nine, and been gone for nearly a decade. He'd only known his sister Elisa and brother Louis very briefly as infants. Three more siblings had been born in his absence. Pauline, Carolyn, and Jerome. He was also getting reacquainted with the place itself. For his entire adolescence, Corsica had loomed large in Napoleon's thoughts. It had become part of his identity. 
and yet he only really knew it from books and from his own fantasies. But if he was apprehensive about returning, he didn't show it. Corsica seems to have lived up to all his expectations. Here's how he wrote about coming home. Quote, you relive a moment of your childhood. You enjoy its pleasures. You feel all the fire of love for the homeland. End quote. It must have been a good visit for him, because he wrote several letters back to army headquarters in Paris requesting extensions on his leave. He didn't return to his regiment until they sent back a firm final no, and ordered him back to Valence in no uncertain terms. All told, he managed to spend 13 months on the island, eight months longer than his original five-month leave. Clearly he was sorry to go back to his boring life at Valence, but I think part of him actually had missed the army. During his stay in Ajaccio, he made frequent visits to the French garrison, and spent time hanging out with the officers. These were the occupiers of his beloved homeland, men he claimed to despise. And yet, apparently, he felt the need to take a break from his family, who he was quite close with and hadn't seen for years, to go socialize with them. During a friendly debate on nationalism with his new officer buddies, Napoleon let his guard down and got a little too enthusiastic talking about Corsican liberty. One of his shocked friends asked, quote, Would you raise your sword against a representative of the king? End quote. Napoleon had spent half of his childhood fantasizing about doing just that, but saying so out loud was dangerous, and would directly contradict the oath he'd taken as an officer in the king's army. So, too proud to lie, and too smart to hang himself, Napoleon stayed silent. We can only imagine how long and awkward the pause must have been. He returned to his regiment in May of 1788. Just as he had at Brienne, Napoleon sought escape in literature. This is probably the period of his life when he read the most voraciously. Not surprising when you consider the unusual combination of stress and boredom he was living under. As always, he read a lot of history, but he was also beginning to delve into more radical political writing. Napoleon read the Comte de Mirabeau, a dissident nobleman who would go on to become a leading political figure in the early phases of the revolution. He also read A Critical History of the Nobility by Jacques Delors, which includes such lines as, quote, Everything which contributes to the happiness of people, to the prosperity of empires, and to the glory of the human spirit, has been the work of non-nobles. Everything which has contributed to the chaining up of reason, brutalizing of the mind, and degrading of government and mankind has been the work of the nobility, end quote. So, critical history might be an understatement. This was pretty strong stuff for pre-revolutionary France. He also delved back into Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who he was already acquainted with at Brienne, but now became cemented as one of his biggest influences. When he wasn't reading, attending to his military duties, or embroiled in some family obligation, Napoleon wrote. He started by vigorously annotating the books he read. By the age of 16, he was writing essays and short stories of his own. If you'll recall, he'd done this during his early years at Brienne as well, so this was more picking up an old habit than developing a new one. At first, he kept his work to himself. This was just a pastime, an amusement. But as he gained confidence, he began to submit pieces for publication. Napoleon's military career would likely go nowhere in a peacetime army. Not only that, it was disappointing. 
he developed lofty expectations of the army as a boy, reading about the great commanders of the past. Lazing around in some provincial town reading books was pretty far from those grand dreams. And he was struggling to make ends meet on his officer's salary. You have to wonder if at this point he was beginning to seriously consider writing as a career, shifting his ambitions from military or political glory, which were beginning to look unreachable, to intellectual accolades, which the Enlightenment had made more attractive and attainable than ever. Not all of Napoleon's writing from this period survives, but what we have is mediocre at best. It's easy to forget how young Napoleon was during this period, and his writing is very much what you would expect from a teenager. You can often tell that he's consciously emulating his literary idols. One piece reads like Rousseau, another like Fontaine. This is very typical of a young writer, experimenting with writing in someone else's voice because he's unsure of his own. He's often melodramatic and pretentious. From one of his early essays, quote, Alone amidst men, I returned to my room to think alone and to abandon myself to melancholy. Where does it lead me today? Towards death. End quote. 18th century literature had a tendency towards flowery language and melodrama. But even so, it's hard to imagine prose like that catapulting Napoleon to literary fame. I think it's safe to say there's no obvious spark of future literary greatness in Napoleon's early writing. But on the other hand, I also wouldn't call it so bad that we can definitively say he never could have developed into a successful writer. Even the great titans of literature had a lot to learn at age 17. With time and effort, Napoleon could well have developed into a fine writer, maybe even a great one. He certainly had the passion for it and plenty of raw brain power. We'll never know. Fate took him in a different direction. At the age of 18, while in Paris on family business, he began work on his most ambitious writing project, A History of Corsica. Not all of it has survived, but the author Napoleon was emulating this time was probably the Abbé Renal, the Enlightenment thinker who wrote the anti-imperialist text A History of the Two Indies, and who Napoleon had briefly met in his youth. This seems like a safe bet because Napoleon sent Reynal an early draft, asking for his advice. Tackling a lengthy history was extremely ambitious given Napoleon's age and experience. It's not as terrible as that essay I read from earlier, but the writing is still immature. Reynal seems to have agreed. His recommendation was a complete rewrite. Napoleon never produced a finished draft but he struggled with rewrites and revisions for over a year, only stopping when he was interrupted by major political events. Here's how one later draft begins. Quote, Friends of free men, interested in the fate of Corsica, which you love. Its character is called freedom. The centrality of its position, the number of its ports, and the fertility of its soil invite a thriving commerce. Why, then, has it never been free or commercial? Because an inexplicable fate has always armed its neighbors against it. It has been prey to their ambition. You have seen it take up the sword, shake off the atrocious Genoese government, recover its independence to live one happy moment. But, pursued by that same irresistible fate, it fell into the most unbearable debasement. For over twenty-four centuries, the same scenes have been repeated without interruption. The same fluctuation, the same misfortune but also the same courage, 
the same resoluteness, the same audacity, end quote. So not that bad, really, especially for a teenager. Still pretty bombastic and melodramatic, but that was the style of the time. Of course, we know that bit about Corsica's fertile soil and numerous ports isn't true, but Napoleon was an artillery officer, not a surveyor. As you can clearly see in that passage, Napoleon still saw himself as a Corsican and still idolized Pauli. His work from this period is full of denunciations of France and nationalist fervor. From an essay, quote, Not content with having stolen all that we cherish, the French have also corrupted our morals. The actual state of my homeland, and the impotence to do anything about it, is just another reason to flee France. Where I am obliged by duty to command men, I must, as a consequence, hate. End quote. Napoleon Bonaparte was the only Corsican officer in the entire French army, and the inherent contradictions of maintaining his identity in that position did not escape him. But he was smart enough to keep his more treasonous writings to himself and present a friendly face to his fellow officers. Napoleon's commanding officer actually took a shine to him and took him under his wing. His name was Colonel Jean-Pierre Dutay, and he was perhaps the most capable artillery officer in the whole French army. Cannon were in Dutay's blood. His father had been an artillery officer in the Seven Years' War. His younger brother, confusingly named Jean, was one of France's greatest military theorists, literally the man who wrote the book on artillery, a book which would remain the standard until the very end of our story in 1815. In 1788, the elder Dutay brother, Napoleon's commander, was appointed commandant of the Royal Artillery School, where his brother Jean, the theorist, was already an instructor. In the 18th century, an army regiment was considered almost like a piece of its colonel's property, and so Napoleon and the rest of the Lafayre men dutifully accompanied Dutay to his new posting. The Royal Artillery School was in Burgundy, in a different sleepy provincial town at the base of the Alpine foothills, Auxonne. Auxonne is about 300 kilometers or 200 miles north of Valence, not far from the modern Franco-Swiss border. Despite being an artillery officer, Napoleon had never attended the Royal Artillery School. The path he'd taken through military school to the École Militaire was considered more prestigious, but in many ways, the Royal Artillery School was actually the more exciting institution. The method of instruction at Auxonne was learning through experience. More drills and demonstrations with real-life canon, less trigonometry and Latin. The École Militaire was traditional and conservative. The Royal Artillery School was at the cutting edge of military theory, a testing ground for radical new tactics. If you know your Second World War military history, you might compare what was going on at Auxonne in this period to the tank maneuvers and theorizing undertaken in the 1920s and 30s by officers like J.F.C. Fuller, Heinz Guderian, and Mikhail Tukhachevsky that gave birth to modern mechanized warfare, or to U.S. Army Air Corps General Billy Mitchell's experiments with bombers that led to modern air warfare. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. In the late 18th century, artillery theory and technology was at a very similar turning point to tanks and airplanes between the world wars. When Napoleon arrived at Auxonne in 1788, he was coming right to the epicenter of that change. France had just finished a complete top-to-bottom overhaul of its artillery service. After the stunning defeat of the Seven Years' War, the French military and political leadership went through an intense period of self-reflection and reform, attempting to correct their failures and surpass the successes of their British and Prussian enemies. Militaries tend to be conservative, but the magnitude of France's defeat made the establishment open to new ideas. That's how an outright radical military theorist came to be appointed Inspector General of the Artillery, empowered to uproot an entire branch of the French military. His name was Jean-Baptiste Vaquette de Gribeval, and his radical ideas would soon become orthodoxy in every Western military, all the way up until the First World War. Cannon had been a part of European warfare for centuries, but before Gribeval, they were a specialty weapon, useful against heavy fortifications, but generally more of a novelty. Generals often just scattered them around the battlefield on different patches of high ground, hoping some enemy unit might blunder into their field of fire and get a nasty surprise. Artillery was thought of more as a wild card than as an integral part of battlefield tactics. Early modern commanders had good reasons to not put too much faith in cannon. They were incredibly slow and cumbersome to move, sometimes arriving too late to take part in a battle. Poor manufacturing techniques made them temperamental. A gunpowder charge big enough to fling a cannonball over a mile puts a cannon barrel under tremendous strain. Every cannon had a limited lifespan before the barrel cracked, or even exploded. The parts required to move and aim the weapon were sensitive too, and in an era in which weapons were produced in small artisans' workshops, everything had to be effectively custom-made for each batch of cannons, so there was no pool of spare parts for a quick fix in the field when something broke. A damaged cannon was usually out for the duration of the campaign. Gribeval created an entirely new system of artillery to address these weaknesses aptly called the Gribeval system. His first principle was speed. The new cannons would be much lighter and easier to pack up and move. This meant they fired a smaller payload, but what use was a big giant cannon if it was still lagging a day's march behind on the day of battle? Under normal conditions, Gribeval's light and medium-sized cannon were capable of moving right along with the infantry at a standard pace of march. If the army faced a heavy fortification, they could always wait for the big guns, but Gribeval recognized that that kind of firepower was superfluous on a typical battlefield. A six-pound cannonball might not be much use against fortress walls, but it wasn't significantly less devastating against infantry or cavalry than a 16-pound cannonball. The second principle of Gribeval's reforms was standardization. The hundreds of different types of artisanal small-batch artillery pieces in the French army would be basically reduced to just four. Heavy, medium, and light cannon, and a heavy mortar. 
Contractors would be required to strictly follow one of these four extremely detailed blueprints. No improvisation, no personal touches. The goal was total uniformity. This caused a general improvement in manufacturing quality, but more importantly, interchangeable parts made repairs quicker and easier. Every artillery regiment could simply keep spares on hand and change out any broken piece. Damage that might have once put a cannon out of commission for months could now be repaired in a few hours. Some of the more conservative generals grumbled that the Gribeval system was dangerously short on firepower, but young officers who actually handled the guns, like the Dutay brothers, welcomed it as a revolutionary improvement. In fact, the Gribeval system was such a massive step forward that by the time Napoleon arrived at Auxonne in 1788, more than 20 years since it was first introduced, forward-thinking officers like the Dutays were still exploring its capabilities. Once Colonel Dutay took command of the Royal Artillery School, he naturally took to borrowing men from the Lafayre Regiment to take part in demonstrations for the students and for experimental maneuvers, exploring these new tactics enabled by Gribeval's mobile, reliable new cannons. Dutte and Lieutenant Bonaparte had a well-established mentor-protege relationship by now, and he often served as the colonel's assistant or deputy on the practice ground. He also got unofficial permission to audit classes at the school. He sometimes spent over eight hours a day in the classroom during this period, almost as much as he had when he was still a student. Finally, Napoleon had discovered something about military life he actually found interesting. His studies of military theory and work with Dutte managed to combine his intellectual nature, martial inclinations, sense of duty to the army, and enthusiasm for action and progress, all into one endeavor. Four months after arriving at Auxonne, Napoleon finally achieved a modicum of success with his writing. But it wasn't for some Enlightenment essay or romantic short story about Corsica rather a dry, workmanlike report on the use of explosive artillery shells. You can't win literary glory with a military science memorandum, but it made a minor splash in army circles. Within the small fraternity of French artillery officers, Napoleon was coming to be recognized as a man with potential. Napoleon built a decent life for himself at Auxonne. He had productive outlets for his endless energy, the project of developing new artillery doctrines for the French army gave him goals, almost worthy of his massive ambitions. In Colonel Dutte, he had found a mentor and a patron, someone who could play the role Pauli and Marbeuf had for his father. The peacetime French army's ludicrously generous policy on the granting of leave meant he could visit Corsica and get reacquainted with his family. Yes, things were looking up for the young second lieutenant. Napoleon probably greeted the new year with more hope and optimism than any in his adult life. 1789 was shaping up to be the first good year since his father's death. I always find it interesting to read accounts of people who lived through that fateful year but were not in Paris or directly involved in any of the disturbances or political events. For most of the people of France, 1789 was just another year. Granted, there were some weird and wild political events that all educated people like Napoleon followed closely, but that was mostly something going on in the background of daily life, only occasionally intruding to disrupt people's normal routines. 
Those disruptions would become much bigger and more frequent in the coming years, to the point where they would come to dominate the lives of most of the people of France. But in the early days of the Revolution, it was a distant event for most Frenchmen. Its significance was not immediately obvious. Napoleon spent the first half of 1789 much as he had 1788, attending to his duties as an officer, sitting in on classes at the Royal Artillery School, assisting Dutte, and reading and writing in his spare time. His first contact with the Revolution came in February, when he helped lead a detachment from the Lafayre Regiment sent to put down a food riot in a nearby village. Napoleon called out to the crowd, quote, Honest men, go home. I will only fire on a mob. End quote. A clever combination of threat and flattery that helped disperse the riot without incident, according to official reports. Colonel Dutte was supposedly pleased with his performance. But of course, Napoleon's experience of a mob peacefully dispersing at the first hint of violence was the rare exception in that year of upheaval. Things heated up. That summer, riots became a regular feature of life in the town of Auxonne itself. Apparently, people were no longer intimidated by the massive military garrison. In some cases, the common soldiers joined in. As the year dragged on, an exodus began. One by one, Napoleon's fellow officers began slipping away, deserting their posts for the new émigré communities in England, Italy, and Germany. Napoleon stayed, of course, and so did Colonel Dutte, but they would soon be in the minority. All of his life, Napoleon valued order. Think back to his unbearably strict upbringing we talked about last time. That sense of discipline never really left him. So he could never bring himself to actually approve of riots and civil disorder. It just went completely against his character. But that didn't stop him from becoming an enthusiastic supporter of the revolution. It's an odd combination, the radical with a deeply held desire for order, and Napoleon never really resolved a lot of the inherent contradictions there. But from what we know about his background and beliefs, I think it's easy to see how someone like Napoleon, who probably had a natural aversion to revolution, could still find himself attracted to it. Napoleon was a disciple of the Enlightenment, and a liberal. He believed reason should be the guiding principle of society, not tradition. He believed in God, but not in the Church or the Bible. He considered all organized religions to be flawed human institutions. He believed in democracy. Well, at least in the most general sense, that the government should represent the popular will. Look at what he was reading in this period of his life. Rousseau, Raynal, even some books that were officially banned. Ideologically speaking, the revolutionaries shared his principles and spoke his language. I'm sure his personal experiences played a role as well. The Bonapartes were better off than most of the population of the country, but within his own class, compared to his peers, Napoleon was very poor. He was an intelligent high achiever living in a world in which birth and social standing meant a lot more than ability or accomplishment. I think all of that must have given him a sense of the inequality and injustice that the revolutionaries were rebelling against. So while his fellow officers were making their plans to slip away to London or the Rhineland, Napoleon became one of the first members of the local chapter of the Society of the Friends of the Constitution, the Jacobin Club. You sometimes read that Napoleon's affiliation with the Jacobins was purely opportunistic. 
Well, at this stage in the revolution, future prominent Jacobins like Robespierre or Danton were radical agitators, completely on the fringe of politics. Even moderate factions of the Jacobins, like the Girondins, were still on the far left edge of politics at this point. The smart move, from a self-interested standpoint, would have been to join the Society of 1789, which was a more conservative, constitutional monarchist political club, set up by moderates as a counter to the Jacobins. Lafayette, the commander of the National Guard and arguably the most important revolutionary of this period, was a member. So was the new liberal mayor of Paris. So was the Comte de Mirabeau, the de facto leader of the assembly at this point. That's where the power was. Napoleon's reading list was far more radical than men like Lafayette or Mirabeau would have liked. Some of his writing was, too. If he hadn't been smart enough to keep some of his spicier pre-revolutionary essays private, Napoleon may well have wound up arrested. When he joined the club at age 20, I think it's beyond doubt that Napoleon genuinely sympathized with Jacobin ideals. The degree to which he remained true to those ideals is a different discussion. The young Napoleon wasn't a loudmouth, but once the revolution broke out, he became much more public about his political beliefs, which can't have been popular among his peers. Within two years, the majority of the French officer corps would leave the army due to their objections to the new political order. Those who stayed were generally reluctant, motivated more by duty than enthusiasm, not true believers like Napoleon. Politics and civil unrest were making Auxonne increasingly inhospitable. Meanwhile, Napoleon's brothers, Joseph and Lucien, had returned to Corsica and thrown themselves into revolutionary politics with typical Bonaparte family gusto. Napoleon desperately wanted to go home to support his brothers and get in on the action himself. So he applied for leave. Once again, he told army headquarters he was ill and needed time off to convalesce. Once again, they pretended to believe him. With so many officers simply deserting, they were probably surprised he bothered asking permission. Napoleon left Auxonne in late summer. Once again, he had just begun to establish himself in a place where he could have thrived, but events pulled him elsewhere before he could get comfortable. He never returned to the Lafayre Regiment. In fact, it would be years before he returned to active duty in the French army. He would find it completely transformed. He never saw Colonel Dutte again. With his obvious talents and all the vacancies caused by desertion, Dutte rose rapidly to the rank of general and played a major role in several of the early campaigns of the War of the First Coalition. However, he was never an enthusiastic revolutionary. During the Terror, Dutte was found guilty of treason and executed. One of the judges at his tribunal was the infamous Joseph Fouché, a man who some of you might know we'll be talking a lot more about in the future. But Napoleon never forgot his old colonel. When he came to power, he supported Dutte's family. He even wrote them into his will. He arrived in Ajaccio at the end of the turbulent summer of 1789. Immediately, Joseph, Napoleon, and Lucien began cooking up all kinds of grandiose plans. The revolution had set the Bonaparte brothers' imaginations on fire. They were 21, 20, and 15 years old, respectively, an excitable age. They'd been raised by ambitious parents. They'd filled their heads with romantic great man histories and stories of Pauli's wars. The Bonaparte brothers spent their youths hoping they might grow into men like the ones in those stories. 
1789, they believed their moment had finally arrived, and they were drunk on the possibilities. Lucian had joined the Jacobins too. He was only a boy, but already making speeches and writing pamphlets. He was the most politically inclined of the brothers. He read political philosophy even more voraciously than Napoleon. Lucian was passionate and idealistic, which was pretty typical of the Bonapartes, but unlike the others, Lucian didn't have a cynical streak to balance it out. He was pure firebrand. And that passion showed through when he spoke about politics. Even as a teenager, he could hold the floor at a political meeting. The brothers envisioned Lucian as the agitator and theoretician of the family political operation. Joseph had just finished his law degree. Even before the revolution, he'd been groomed for politics, to follow in his father's footsteps. And he was cut out to do it. Joseph probably took after Carlo more than any other member of the family. He was a born wheeler-dealer, a natural schmoozer. When the two boys had been shipped off for school in France, the culture shock had been just as intense for Joseph as it was for Napoleon. Just like his brother, Joseph was bullied as a poor foreigner. But rather than withdrawing and brooding like Napoleon had, Joseph quickly ingratiated himself to his bullies. By the time he left for university, Joseph was one of the most popular students on campus. In 1789, he was running for mayor of Ajaccio. Joseph was to be the face of the Bonaparte family in government and in electoral politics. His charm made him a natural campaigner, and that knack for glad-handing and making connections would be useful in the halls of power once he won. So where did Napoleon fit into all this? At this point in his life, he actually still envisioned himself exclusively as a military man. He had just shifted his focus from the regular army to the National Guard. I talked a lot about the National Guard in Episode 7. It was a kind of civic militia set up by the revolutionaries, mostly recruited from the liberal bourgeoisie. Napoleon's role in the Bonaparte political machine would be extending the family's influence into the National Guard. This could easily become a powerful force. Once the Corsican National Guard reached its expected size, it would be the biggest military presence on the island, and it also played a role in maintaining public order and security, including on Election Day. Corsican politics routinely got corrupt, dirty, and violent. Gaining control of the men guarding the polling stations would be a huge priority for any ambitious family. When Napoleon arrived in Ajaccio, the Corsican National Guard was barely in its infancy. They had some enthusiastic recruits, but not much else. It would take a lot to turn a bunch of excited amateurs into a real, organized military institution, and Napoleon immediately threw himself into the effort. With his family connections and military training, he quickly became one of the leading figures in the movement to organize the Corsican section of the Guard. Once the men were recruited and the unit was fully organized on paper and approved by the government, the officers would be elected by the men. There would be a unit stationed in Ajaccio led by two lieutenant colonels. The election would be years away, but Napoleon was already angling for one of those positions. So within a few years, the Bonaparte brothers hoped to have Joseph building up a political base as mayor of the regional capital, Lucien established as a radical orator and political thinker, and Napoleon in charge of the local military forces. In these three complementary roles, the Bonaparte brothers could support each other's ambitions, and if they were successful, the family would become the dominant force in the Ajaccio region, and major players in Corsican politics at large. 
History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. By contrasting both the experiences of contemporaries and the conclusions of historians, Grey History dives into the detail and unpacks one of the most important and disputed events in human history. From a revolution based on hope and liberty to its descent into the infamous Reign of Terror, there's plenty to discuss and plenty of grey to explore. One can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So if you're looking for your next long-form, binge-worthy history podcast, one recommended by universities and loved by enthusiasts, then check out Grey History, the French Revolution today. Or simply search for the French Revolution. A lot of you are probably thinking this all sounds a little crazy, given that the oldest Bonaparte brother was only 21 years old when they cooked all this up. And that wouldn't be just some anachronistic modern perspective. As we'll see, once the Bonaparte brothers started trying to put this plan into action, a lot of people found them presumptuous, arrogant, and pushy. But they weren't going at this alone. They had a little help from their family's status and from Carlo's memory, but they also had a powerful new patron. We've already seen this phenomenon several times in the story, and we'll see it again. The Bonapartes were good at picking their friends and ingratiating themselves to the right people. This new patron will be one of the most important, Christophe Salicetti. He was a lawyer from northern Corsica who had been elected to the National Assembly in Paris. Salicetti was a natural-born politician. As soon as he arrived in the capital, he began making himself useful to other revolutionary leaders. He didn't like the limelight, but he quickly became a powerful force behind the scenes. Salicetti had some distant family connections to the Bonapartes, but more importantly, he was a fervent political radical and supporter of the revolution. Most eminent Corsicans had ambivalent feelings about the revolution. On one hand, they didn't have much love for the French monarchy and hoped Corsica might get a better deal under a new government. Maybe even regain its independence. However, they were generally a pretty conservative bunch. Piously Catholic, skeptical of new ideas, and unwilling to give up on any of their own power. A radical like Salicetti had to find political allies wherever he could. And here were these distant cousins. Sons of a prominent local politician, lots of energy and ambition, and they shared a lot of his beliefs. Salicetti saw the Bonaparte brothers as good prospects, and threw his clout behind their schemes. Whether they knew it or not, the Bonaparte brothers had bet on the right horse. The revolutionary government grew more powerful by the day, and so did Salicetti's influence within it. The clearest sign of their new patron's power came on November 30, 1790. Months of Salicetti's quiet lobbying and political bartering came to fruition when the assembly voted to recognize Corsica as an integral part of France. As an overseas possession, Corsica had been in a bit of a legal gray area since the beginning of the revolution. It hadn't been totally clear whether or not all these sweeping liberal reforms coming out of the assembly actually applied to the island. Well, that ambiguity was now gone. Corsica was French and Corsican society would be changing right alongside French society. It took almost a month for the news to reach Ajaccio. But when it did, there were mass celebrations. Church bells rang out. That night, there was a bonfire in the town square with dancing, drink, and songs. People shouted, Long live France, and long live the king. 
The Bonaparte brothers celebrated too. They saw this as a triumph of their radical ideas and a good omen for their political ambitions. Napoleon hung a banner outside a window of the family home that read, Long live the fatherland, long live Pauli, and long live Mirabeau. With a reference to both the famous independence leader and the leader of the National Assembly in Paris, it's not totally clear whether the fatherland he was celebrating was Corsica or France. Maybe he meant both. That's a pretty stunning transformation for a man who had sworn eternal enmity against France. Do you think even a few years earlier Napoleon could have imagined himself actually celebrating Corsica's legal annexation? The revolution had shifted his whole perspective. He was beginning to associate France with a lot of his most closely held principles. Equality, rationalism, meritocracy, and modernity. All of those negative traits he used to associate with the French in general came to be associated specifically with the monarchy and the aristocracy. Decadence, corruption, sloth, injustice, and the arbitrary abuse of power. The old regime held little attraction for Napoleon. He had philosophical disagreements with the way the government operated, and it offered little chance for someone like him to advance. The revolution offered him a glimpse of a different France, a country built on ideals he shared and where his talents and energy might be rewarded. It was a very attractive vision for Napoleon, so attractive that it eventually would eclipse that dream of Corsican freedom he'd held dear his whole life. As Napoleon fought for the revolution, both in his political career and on the battlefield, that fusion between Enlightenment Republican principles and the idea of the French nation would grow stronger in his thoughts. The revolution put Napoleon on a path that would lead a Corsican nationalist and an Italian to become a Frenchman, an idiosyncratic form of nationalism that favored ideas rather than blood ties. But in 1790, he was still at the very beginning of that process, still in flux, of two minds. Remember, that banner said, Long live Pauli and Long live Mirabeau. Apparently, during the same period that he was wearing a tricolor cockade and toasting the assembly, Napoleon sometimes fantasized that once the Corsican National Guard was organized and trained, he might use it to storm the French garrison and declare independence. Napoleon's two identities were a delicate balancing act. His Corsican identity had sustained him through a difficult childhood. But he'd spent most of his life in France, and his intellectual life was thoroughly French. Both sides were a part of him. He couldn't easily turn his back on either. But that same legislation that Napoleon was celebrating in December of 1790 would soon make that balancing act impossible. An amendment to Salicetti's bill had granted amnesty to every Corsican still wanted by French authorities for resisting the conquest of the island. After two decades of exile, Pasquale Paoli, Napoleon's idol, was coming home. Napoleon welcomed the news with joy, but the old general's homecoming would test both his self-image and his political skills like never before. I think that's a good cliffhanger to leave you with. Next time, we'll delve into the Bonaparte brothers' adventures in politics, get reacquainted with General Pauli, and check back in with the revolutionaries in Paris. Until then, thanks for joining me. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.